Alrighty, howdy doody, friends, colleagues, comrades, enemies, trolls, saboteurs, the whole lot of you, welcome, welcome friend and foe, and here we have Richard joining us, how's it going? Good, how are you? Uh, Did you rush out today to make bulk purchases of firearms and e-cigarettes <laughs> well firearms well that's like well, they're going in opposite direction the e-cigarettes are over the firearms you know there's you, we can be a little patient there right you would be going time. out in like a celebratory frenzy to purchase the firearms whereas <laughs> you'd be going out to e-cigarettes <laughs> yeah. yeah to to <laughs> utilize your last opportunity to stock up on jewels you know, I, I tried to become an e-cigarette smoker for a while because I smoked like when I was like a teenager and it was just it just didn't sit well with me. I mean, I smoked like five or ten cigarettes a day and I had really bad, uh, really bad cough. I got bronchitis at one point, so I stopped. I mean, I stopped smoking when I was, you know, just like teenager. Uh, and then I'm like, oh, I'll try the e-cigarettes. Like I can get all the joys of smoking. This was like a year, you know, like two, two years ago or something when it was in the news uh, when Trump <laughs> first banned. I'm um, like, oh, I heard about it in the news, like all this public health stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I should try this thing. Uh, and then it was like the same thing. Like it, it actually did uh, make me – give me a bad cough. Uh, so I'm like, hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm just not meant to be smoking anything. I did start taking like uh, uh, the gum. Someone recommended the gum to me and that you know, that has had no uh, bad effects so far. But smoking is much more fun. I, I wish I could actually do it. Yeah, I was never a regular cigarette smoker. I did go through a phase where I was one of those guys who had packs of rolling tobacco. Um, I didn't smoke it. I didn't smoke rolled cigarettes that much, but I had it, you know, on hand, and I would usually combine it with marijuana if I did smoke it. <laughs> um, uh, so I never was a regular habitual cigarette smoker, really. Uh, but I did decide to get vapes. <laughs> I did decide to start becoming a vape user at different points. Um, so I didn't become a vape user because I was trying to quit cigarettes, but because I wanted to ingest nicotine. Yeah. And in part because over the course of my research, so I quote, did my own research, which is a sacrilegious thing. But I did it, and I didn't find a whole lot of evidence that nicotine was at all harmful unto itself and, in fact, could have some cognitive benefits. Yeah, um, I have, I'm not I, sure that long-term dependency on it is necessarily a great thing. But at the same time, I feel like still even today in the public mind, the harms caused by cigarettes or even vaping are conflated with the harms of nicotine as a chemical property yeah puritans don't like anybody to enjoy anything so i think the nicotine <laughs> they, they come after yeah I, I never looked into the uh, nicotine i never like did the research because i am um, the people who recommended to me to uh uh start uh, chewing nicotine gum it was a tyler cohen's emergent ventures conference Do you know the emergent ventures thing tyler cohen does uh i don't know that particular thing obviously i'm familiar with tyler cohen uh, 
Yeah, so he does this thing, Emergent Venture Grants. Anyway, the people who get the grants are, like, you know, very smart people in business. They're the kind of people who would, like, do the research and, like, figure out exactly, like, how much caffeine and Adderall and, like... Right, right. <laughs> and so, like, there's just, like, a, I fell in with, like, a group of guys at the conference, um, and uh, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, nicotine gum, nicotine gum. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I, I trust you guys, like, have rationally, like, looked at the costs and benefits. And from what I've heard, I've heard that nicotine is, you know, not bad for you in itself. And, yeah, I picked it up as a... Uh, not even as a habit. Like at the end of the day, like I'll have I'll have one. Uh, you know, what do you? It's not a stick of gum. It's like a what a cube. I don't know. Whatever it is. I'll have so you don't take it while working or writing or doing something. No, that's, that's cognitively that, no, that demanding. Adder, adder, isn't isn't no. that why they would recommend it? No, I have Adder, I mean, I have Adderall for that. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, so nicotine's not hard enough to, to give me the focus that I want when I when I write. Uh, and so yeah, nicotine's more to fall asleep. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> I got a stimulants to you have to fall asleep at work. Yeah, I mean, I find nicotine to have a mild stimulative effect, maybe reminiscent of caffeine. So I, I actually t- do. I don't do. I don't chew the gum, but I have uh, lozenges <laughs> that I use, um, which is basically just a like a mint type thing that you. Just oh, is that the thing that, uh, is that, that melts on your? It's like a. It's like a like a thin paper, right? No, it's not a paper. It's like a, a slightly oversized. It's like a mint. It looks like a a mint that you'd kind of suck on. I mean, you don't actively. I don't actively suck on it. You kind of just put it under your tongue or your lip or something and just leave it there. Yeah, I never like mints. Mints are not active enough for me. You know, give me a gum. I can chew it. Smoke. You can move like a mint. What do you do with a mint? I, I just I just don't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like. Uh, Sometimes gum chewing gives me a headache over time. I don't know. Uh-huh. So uh, I don't know. I've, I, I've opted for the lozenges. I'm not saying I have a uh, sweeping rationale that makes complete sense behind it. Uh-huh. Um, did you follow? Uh, did what? Did you, what do you make of the uh, any of the rulings that came out today? The, the gun ruling, obviously. I just read. I haven't like meltdown. But did you follow any of it? Uh, well, yeah, I followed. There was one very the one that I um, read yesterday was the one on the 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 one in the schools in Maine. Um, the I don't know yeah, if you yeah. this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I skimmed that one. Yeah, and then the, I didn't read the um, the, the one in Maine one. is I where the court ruled that for. Um, Public school students in Maine who live in an area where their location does not designate them into a particular school district, so probably more rural areas. Yeah. Uh, the state of Maine had a program where they could select from a certain list of schools for the child to attend, and the court ruled that religious schools could not be excluded from that list. And, you know, the, the, the state pays like a, uh, a voucher or something, or the, the state yeah, makes exactly. a payment to the school district to sort of compensate for what they would be paying if they had been going to the school district, school district associated with where they live. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you couldn't exclude religion, which is, I mean, it's interesting because I think these uh, cases are, they're not about a few religious schools. They're basically there's a bigger movement to sort of opt out of the public school system, and often the alternative to that is religion. And the question is whether government, you know, state like state governments are going to put uh, or courts are going to put uh, 
barriers to doing that. So I'm, I'm interested in sort of the education and whether, um, you know, like, you know, what, what, what options there are for, for parents. So I read that one. The gun one, I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't read it. I don't know if there's much, um, you know, every one of these is incremental. It's like, you know, they, it's like, oh, you can't have a gun in your house. And then like DC versus Heller, basically, I think was the one that just said, you know, you have a right to, you know, just to have a gun. And then, you know, and then, the next, and then the next one is like, okay, you can't have it outside your home unless you have a reason that the state, you know, that you give to the state. And so we're like, no, you could actually carry a gun um, outside. You know, it's like, it's not like, I mean, it's, it's like a it's strange how much, um, uh, how much like the gun control people care about this because it's not like, you know, it's like, it's not like the question before the court is whether you're going to snap your, snap your fingers and there's going to be all the guns in America is going to disappear. It's like, we're a country where like, you know, criminals have guns and like people, you know, they're, they're not that hard to get. And it's like, you know, is, are more criminals and dangerous people going to have guns because they're allowed to carry it outside the, you know, outside their home. You can only you know, granted already before the case, you could, they already ruled you could own a gun. So it's like the, you're worried about the person, um, you know, so you're you're worried you're worried about people who are going to start carrying guns, like because now it's legal when like they could have guns before legally, right? Uh, so are you like, are you likewise credulous that the pro Second Amendment people care so much about it if it's just this relatively insignificant incremental reform? Well, well, the thing, well, for them, I mean, for them, it's like they're into guns and they're into like you know. Uh, well, the gun control like, people are into gun control. I mean, it's like yeah. a cause unto itself. Yeah, I know, but yeah. So but, if it's, just, but, it's, if it's just based on what you're into, then. Yeah, right. I guess. I mean, yeah, but I, the question is the practical effect. So the practical effect for the second, the, the people, like the people who are for gun control, they just don't like, you know, they would say they're, they want less gun violence. I was hearing some politician today saying in the midst of a, you know, a gun, you know, this, uh, all this gun violence in our city, uh, they're going to, the Supreme Court's going to put fuel on the fire. And so their premise, they, like they don't, like if you could guarantee to them, like, you know, that the this people will not carry guns yeah. because... Yeah, uh, so so it's based. I think it's based on a, on a false belief. Now the pro gun people, like it will make a difference. Like if you are a law abiding citizen and you want to carry uh, a gun out in public, um, so I don't think that they're being irrational because they just want the the right to do that. Uh, but the people who think it's gonna like you know make a lot of you know uh, do uh, you know cause a lot more violence. I mean, I think that's just a false premise. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the pro gun control people aren't even so much invested in the idea of curbing gun violence. I mean, that's one of the slogans that they'll use to encapsulate their views, but they're also just kind of um, singularly, they're also interested in the more kind of singular goal of just curbing the proliferation of guns, period. So even if... Even That's if like a two percent increase in the proliferation of guns doesn't result in a two percent increase in the incidence of gun violence, they would still want to curb the proliferation of guns because that's just a goal that they have, separate yeah. and apart from whether it results in violence. Is that? I mean, would they say that? Like, even if guns? I don't think they would say that, but I think it's true because you know a lot of them actually find guns themselves to be morally kind of defective at least in terms of the the proliferation. I think they, they, they view gun ownership to kind of be presumptively morally defective in some sense. 
Uh, I think they do, but I, I mean, I don't think you get the, I don't think you get the gun control energy without some belief that it's actually, it actually matters for a crime. Like it's, it's no, like, no. You know, I mean, it's it's both. But I'm saying they, but the, the, the but they still have a, a goal that could be distilled into reduction in the proliferation of firearms, and they would maintain that goal even if it were disconnected from the incidents of gun violence. That's what I'm saying. Uh, okay, so from that perspective... That I'm not sure if they would have enough self-awareness to acknowledge that, but I, that's my inference based on my observations of their mm. behavior. Yeah, and so the question is, if this court ruling had gone the other way, um, would there be fewer guns because, like, somebody would have just said it's not worth it? You know, some law-abiding citizen would have said, uh, you know, who cares about the law, would have said, I could own a gun in my house, but I can't carry it outside my house or it's too much burden or whatever. Um, you know, I'm not going to buy it, so I'm not just going to not bother buying the gun. Yeah, I guess it's plausible. I, you know what I wonder? What I wonder is I don't know enough about, um, like, how this law actually functioned. Like, was it, like, a really high burden? Like, did you have to, like, prove a lot? Or was it just, like, jumping through a hoop? Like, you just say, oh, I want it, and, you know, they, they approve you. Meaning the law uh, that was struck down in the ruling today? Yeah. Well, I mean, the law, it it is a pretty burdensome law in New York to be able to obtain uh, a handgun. So in New York, you have to obtain a permit in order to purchase a handgun. And New York made it much more onerous than at least other states for that application to be successful. Donald Trump famously successfully obtained a handgun permit, or at least claimed he did, in part because they use these incredibly subjective criteria to determine whether or not an application is going to be approved. And the criteria for determining whether or not an application is going to be approved is whether the applicant can demonstrate that they have a special, ne- uh, yeah, so special is- need yeah. of protection, which is obviously incredibly vague. And in practice, what it's meant... Uh, meant is that you know people who are say celebrities or very wealthy or have like certain political or social connections can say that they have a unique risk to their personal safety on account of those traits and therefore should be given a permit but somebody who says that i, I live in a high crime area and i fear for my safety yeah. According to New York, couldn't demonstrate that they have a particularized risk that sets them apart from the general population by making that particular yeah. argument. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, this is this is a big deal. This is the, the default being you can't concealed carry in now. Uh, you can. So yeah, I mean, so well, you can conceal carry in in New York. You just had to go through an extremely convoluted and arbitrary process in order right. to obtain authorization well, well, to, well, to conceal carry. That sounds like it sounds like in practice you actually can't unless you're Donald Trump or you're somebody famous, right? Well, in practice, it's very difficult. I mean, some people can. Yeah, but it's like it's highly it's highly specialized. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So this. Uh, yeah. This. This matters. Look. The. The. That's kind of. You know. We had the. Um, we had like a really big relaxation of the gun law. Like this is something. It's like. It's like. It doesn't prove it. It doesn't prove that it like. 
lowers crime, but you did have like the murder rate going down as the gun laws became less restrictive in this in this country. Um, I don't think that the restrictive gun laws, you know, caused the crime rates to. I don't think the less caused the crime rates to drop. I think it's you know hard to determine. Uh, whether it mattered, but like the fact is, like you know, we did all we had all these laws, and the murder rate went down for a long time. It just went up for the last few years, um, but that's not because you know the, that's not the laws. That's other things going on. So yeah, the gun control debate is actually pretty stupid. It's like if it was if it was actually a debate of like whether we could have a country with no guns or a country with a lot of guns, like we have now, like that would be something. But like these marginal like changes, like oh background check, oh five days instead of three days, you know, none of this I I think matters. So it's really just something people want to uh focus on for you know for whatever they're because because they're not good at statistical reasoning where like they can just look at this and say this is not the way to save lives this is not the best use of my time or like you know you said they just dislike the other the you know the rednecks all have guns and they want to sort of stick it to them but it's such a it's such a you know it's not like it's like the stupidest thing in the world to think that like this would make a big difference but i just don't think it does well, yeah, I think if the Supreme Court ruled today that any regulations on handgun ownership are unconstitutional, that would be a huge deal. I mean, that would radically yeah. change if you could buy them, the legal mechanisms. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would legally that would radically change the mechanisms by which people can obtain handguns. But the scope of this ruling is actually pretty narrow, or narrower than you'd expect given the histrionic reaction frankly on quote both sides because because guns are so attached to culture war passions people love to kind of chronically exaggerate and dramatize any issue related to gun policy and yeah. you know i don't i'm not saying that the ruling is insignificant there are some relatively significant potential implications to what the court ruled but it's not like somehow uh Tomorrow, you can walk into a grocery store and buy a handgun in New York City. I mean, I had an interesting, actually, and long, surprisingly long exchange on Twitter today with uh, Richie Torres, who's a congressman from New York. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, did, I didn't expect him to reply. Occasionally, that happens and it surprises you. I've had it happen before, actually, including with Adam Kinzinger and others. Um, <laughs> but he, because yeah, he, 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 I, I noticed that he, 10 minutes after the decision was published this morning. He already had a take. So I questioned whether he could have actually read the decision in those 10 minutes, unless he's one of the world's most advanced speed readers, in which case I want some tips from him. Um, But he said that uh, the Supreme Court's decision will deepen the crisis of gun violence in NYC and beyond. Striking down the proper cause requirement, as SCOTUS has done, means allowing the average person a right to carry a gun in public, even in a city as densely populated as New York. So when I read that, so I had already read the lion's share of the decision when I saw that tweet, and so a couple of things stood out. One was that uh, 43 states, including you know deep blue states like Illinois, Washington, Connecticut, Delaware, Rhode Island, are totally unaffected by the ruling because those states, the 43 do not have this, quote, proper cause requirement. And what is a proper cause requirement? Well, it's that in order to successfully obtain a permit for a handgun in seven states, 
you have to demonstrate that you are seeking the handgun for a, quote, proper cause. And in New York, they define proper cause as a demonstrated unique need for self-protection. And with this proper cause requirement, it uh, mandates that state officials subjectively adjudicate whether an applicant has adequately established that they have a, quote, proper cause Mm -hmm. to obtain a gun. So, you know, in Connecticut, there are still some extensive regulations on gun ownership, but the restrictions that it imposes on, for example, handgun acquisition are universal rather than subjective, right? So you don't have to rely on a magistrate to judge whether you've met certain criteria. It's just they have universal rules for everyone who applies, unlike New York and six other states. So if somehow this ruling, which affects New York but not Connecticut, is going to vastly deepen the crisis of gun violence in New York City, as Torres claimed, and is going to lead to this incredibly dangerous scenario where the, quote, average person can suddenly have a right to walk around with a gun in public, does that mean that Connecticut had already been afflicted by these extreme dangers because it didn't have the proper cause requirement? (laughs) Because that's the only thing really that that was tangibly adjudicated by the Supreme Court. Um, Everything else really that it ruled, and it did go into a very long historical disquisition on the tradition of gun regulation in the U.S., but in terms of a tangible effect on existing law, all it did was strike down those seven particular laws. Now, it did kind of introduce, Clarence Thomas, who wrote the majority opinion, did introduce this new standard on which the constitutional propriety of gun regulations are supposed to be uh, adjudicated, which is that it must be done in reference to the, quote, historical tradition of gun regulations in the U.S., which is incredibly, almost farcically vague. And it's not like the Supreme Court mandated a firm set of criteria for what, how that, quote, historical tradition is supposed to be, you know, adjudicated. Um, so anyway, I put it to I put it to uh, put that question to Torres about you know are you saying that Connecticut was riven by horrendous gun violence uh, because prior to today it it did not have this uh, did not have this restriction mm-hmm. and you know eventually I got him to <laughs> concede that quote this decision will not allow anyone to carry a firearm in public. And he distinguished that from, but, quote, but it will allow the average person to do so. Mm-hmm. Which I said seemed like a somewhat subtle distinction to me. Um, and I guess the, my, my issue was that he was giving out a misleading impression of what the ruling was actually going to do. Like it was just going to flood the streets of Manhattan with uncontrolled handguns, and it just simply wasn't. And li- likewise, I think a lot of conservatives and gun rights people were kind of uh, sort of foolishly euphoric about what ramifications this will actually have. Like, yeah, it is, it is pr- pretty incremental. Um, 
but still interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's for the for the pro gun people. I think it's more than for the uh, anti gun people. I mean, it, that is possible, right? Like, you, it, it is a big deal if before you couldn't carry a gun outside your home, and now you can. That's just like a big difference. Now that's bad for the anti gun people. But if if you're but that's not is, but, the, but but but. Before you can carry a gun outside your home and now you, you can't carry a – that's not what the court ruled. The court didn't say people who couldn't well, carry a gun outside their home before can now do so. Well, and, well They simply the, ruled the rule. that no, in order to impose restrictions on handgun ownership, a state must not use this subjective criteria which puts whether a gun application is approved at the whim of a magistrate using kind of arbitrary – uh, decision making. Yeah. Well, you're right. You're right. Processes. I, I didn't, but it, it was yeah. just about the arbitrary, or was it? About, I mean, I, I've seen like a paragraph, that, uh, you know, the ruling that suggested. Yeah, they essentially concluded that the criteria in place in New York, but it's not. It was, was, it was, ar- was arbitrary. But it wasn't because it was just because it was subjective and arbitrary. From my understanding of what happened, is they thought it was. Uh, there, there. You, you basically have to have that right because the first uh, somebody you know gave me a few paragraphs, in it, and it sounds like a, you know the decision is basically. Um, it's basically saying you have a right to carry outside your home unless there's a good reason not to. It, that's and that's not it. It's like if you if you pass if, no. you pass, if New York went back and passed the same law, but said why. Yeah, that's the know. thing. You, New York, New York could, New York could pass, like New York could tomorrow pass even more stringent restrictions on handgun ownership than it had on the books today. And according to the kind of clarifying concurrences that Kavanaugh, Roberts, and Alito all wrote, um, those restrictions would not be deemed unconstitutional by this decision. The decision does not rule one way or another on the constitutionality of any particular gun restriction. It simply says that the restrictions cannot be imposed using the subjective framework uh, that had been employed by New York. So the New, New York tomorrow could impose even more stringent restrictions than it had today. And as long as they're universal criteria like are used in Illinois or Connecticut, then they're not afoul of this decision. Mm -hmm. You should really read, I mean, I don't know, depending on how interested you are, it really is worth reading the concurrences. Um, So Alito did a concurrence for himself. Uh, Basically, and Alito's concurrence was in reaction to the dissent because the dissent which I actually didn't read the whole uh, whole body of, but the dissent like go starts listing all these statistics about gun violence and mass shootings and uh, suicides and all these other ill effects of the ubiquity of guns in the U.S. Yeah. Um, but Alito basically says in his concurrence, "Wait, what the hell are you even talking about?" Uh, minority opinion writers, because our decision has nothing to do with any of that. So it's uh, so I'm looking at the syllabus, which is he, so the Alito says. Alito says this quote: yeah, the, "Our holding decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun, nor does it decide anything about the kinds of weapons that people may possess." 
And Kavanaugh says, the court's decision does not prohibit states from imposing licensing requirements for carrying a handgun and does not affect existing licensing regimes that are employed in 43 other states. So you go, Colorado could just use its existing regime today for the regulation of handguns to, you know, theoretically not prohibit anyone to purchase a handgun or not not bar it outright because that would violate the Heller decision from 08, but impose, you know, extremely stringent regulations and it wouldn't violate this. So the, the, con, the concurrence is uh, – a concurrence. I'm looking at the concurrence. The, Alito had his own individual one. Kavanaugh had his own one uh, with Roberts, and then Barrett had one. So the concurrence is, is not what – Yeah, Barrett was more like technical. Yeah. The, the, Sorry, the concur, the, what's holding is the majority opinion. So I'm not reading – I'm reading the syllabus, which is just the summary, right? And it says evidence from around the adoption. So it's basically saying that um, – uh, so the, the syllabus is saying that you know it has to be you know the two-step framework for like Second Amendment – uh, step one is demands a test group in the second. So they're basically saying you need this historical analysis. Um, right. And, and they say that um, it is undisputed that Coke and Nash are part of the people whom the Second Amendment protects. And nobody disputes. The court has limited the plain text that protects the code of conduct, carrying handguns publicly for self So they're saying Second Amendment very uh, in a self-defense um, and then burden falls on the respondents so that's the uh, the state of New York to show that New York's proper cause is consistent with it so he's putting they're putting the burden on the state government itself um, to use history and say it's consistent with whatever so you have to go right the so the New York state legislature is now burdened with the yeah. responsibility to demonstrate that any future law they may draft around gun regulation conforms with this new standard set out by the court that it must uh, has to uh, be in line with – like the new regulations have to be in line with the, quote, historical tradition of gun regulation in the U.S., which they, the, the court expressly leaves open to extremely wide interpretation. Um, so that was that. That was one of the main effects of the law, this of the ruling, this introduction of a new standard for evaluating the constitutionality of gun regulations, and two, the striking down of these yeah. subjective uh, right, but regimes. Here. But other than here. that, it doesn't co- it doesn't, no, codif- not, it doesn't codify anyone's right. Okay. So here's, to walk so here's around a, with a with a handgun outside. Okay. Here's, so here's here's I think part in of practice part. it could facilitate more people's ability to do that, but it doesn't enshrine that as a right. Okay, they're saying, okay, so in the part where they sort of describe what the historical analysis uh, involves, he says respondents rely heavily on three restrictions, which generally fall into three categories. Common law offenses, statutory prohibits, prohibitions, and surety statutes. None of these restrictions impose a substantial burden on public carry, and that goes to the that imposed by New York's restrictive licensing regime. So the pro- problem, it's not saying it's discretionary, um, unless there's something else. It's saying that the problem is it's restrictive. That's the, that's the thing. So you can't have a thing which just said, okay, if you have an IQ, it's not discretionary. If you have an IQ of 130, right, if you're 2% of the population, you can carry a gun. Like, that wouldn't be okay. The point is, you. I think the point is the discretionary part matters, but also the part that it, you have the Second Amendment right to carry your gun outside the home, right? Like D.C. Heller found for... It, it. And so that's... Uh, uh, and so that you know that, that you just, that you just dropped out for a second. Uh, yeah. So this means so this means that the state of New York cannot go back 
and just do something that's more restrictive than this. That's my reading from just looking at the syllabus real quick. Well, I mean, so it, got- but if that's true, if that's true, then uh, Kavanaugh's well, concur- concurrence is, it, Kavanaugh's concurrence it, 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 would have no weight. It, 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 and concurrence by itself doesn't doesn't have any weight. Concurrence is like someone trying to tip the scale, you know, the uh, to you know tip the scale and say, well, here's some clear-. and like if the next court likes the concurrence and like likes what it says, it can like sort of rely on it. But like officially, it's it's uh, you know it's about what gets a majority opinion. Well, yeah, but Kavanaugh and Roberts, who jointly authored a concurrence, were in the majority. So like a state a state legislature drafting a new law. You know, in a discussion of potential constitutional <laughs> if, considerations, the law could cite the concurrence by Kavanaugh. If somebody can cite, they could cite the concurrence. But if somebody else cites the majority opinion, if they if they contradict in any way, the you know Kavanaugh and uh, and uh, uh, Roberts are with the majority opinion too. Sometimes what they do is they'll say, "I join the majority in part A, B, and C, but not D." It doesn't look like they do that. So it looks like they signed on to everything. If you find something in those other concurrent the concurrences that. Kant seems to contradict it. Well, here's what, uh, here's, what, here's, what, here's, what, here's what Kavanaugh writes. And, you know, the fact that he's joined by Roberts, the chief justice, makes this even more consequential, I would think. Quote, the court's decision addresses only the unusual discretionary licensing regimes known as, quote, may issue regimes that are employed by six states, including New York. Oh, I thought it was seven. Sorry. Um, as the court explains... New York's outlier may issue regime is constitutionally problematic because it grants open-ended discretion to licensing officials and authorizes licenses only for, only for those applicants who can show some special need apart from self-defense. Mm-hmm. Those features of New York's regime, the unchanneled discretion for licensing officials and the special need requirement, in effect dot deny the right to carry handguns for self-defense to many ordinary law-abiding citizens. Uh-huh. So why, for, why would, so why would why would Kavanaugh be so adamant about okay. stressing that the, the decision quote only addresses so I'm the discretionary regimes? Like if it if it did codify a general right to be armed with a handgun outdoors, I mean. So I uh, I'm trying to find the play the points you're saying. I, I looked for the word. I'm searching Control F for uh, the word unchallenged because I heard that one. I don't see it, but let me see something. Unchanneled, unchanneled. Ah, unchanneled. Okay, unchanneled. Unchanneled. Let's your new regime. Uh, blah blah blah. Rough white citizens. The, these features in New York's re- regime, the unchanneled license, in effect deny the right to carry handguns for self-defense for many ordinary law-abiding citizens. The court has held that individual self-defense is the central component. So it sounds like he's saying that, yeah, this is one kind of way that it's bad. Like, this is w- unchallenged discretion is bad. Unch- unchanneled discretion is bad. Um, but it, in effect, denies the right to carry for special defense for ordinary law-abiding citizens. So what that seems to say is the fact that it denies for ordinary law-abiding citizens is the problem. So if the New York went back and, you know, again, law-abiding citizens did not have the right to uh, own, uh, carry guns outside the home, that would still be problematic. So I do think, I don't think it's... But, you're, but if you're an ordinary law-abiding citizen and you have a... You know, a mental health diagnosis, which can then be adjudicated and then be cited to prevent you to deny your application for a gun permit. I mean, are, are you? I, I don't. Th- I don't think by the rationale set out here that Kavanaugh is saying that your rights are violated. 
well, maybe for maybe or you know ordinary, you know whatever. If you have a mental problem, maybe not. Uh, and then he goes the second makes sense. The court has held that individual self defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right. New York's laws inconsistent with the Second Amendment right to okay for self defense. So it, it's it, it, I don't see anything. I mean, you could, you could tell me if you see anything. It has to be it, the discretion is the point. They they can come back and do something stricter. If Kavanaugh if Kavanaugh says that. Um, yeah, just point me to that because that that would be that that's what's necessary for what you're saying. No, he doesn't. I mean, he, he doesn't say that directly. That's my that's my inference. Yeah, um, but I don't think I he mean, also well, says I, you know uh, you know by contrast, 43 states employ objective shall issue licensing regimes. Those shall issue regimes may require a, lic- a licensed applicant to undergo fingerprinting, a background check, a mental health records check, and training in firearms handling and in laws regarding the use of force, among other possible requirements. So he's he's still contemplating a fairly vast and undefined range of requirements that would still be permissible, Nobody's notwithstanding the striking down of this New York law. I mean, and in fact, because they're not, he's saying that they're not opining on whether any given requirement is constitutionally allowable. So he says. So after he says that, right? Like, okay, yeah. So if, he said, if he's saying we're not, if 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 so and so was deprived a gun, and Kavanaugh is saying the reason for your deprivation of like the 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 regulation which resulted in you being deprived of this gun is not something that we're really even ruling on on the merits. We're ruling on the subjective criteria that formulated that regulation. I, no, I don't think it's a severe. So, okay, so I basically read Kavanaugh's concurrence now because it's only three pages. Um, so I, I don't, I don't see it. You know, it's, uh, you, you know, these. So he said you can have right fingerprinting, background check, mental health record. Okay, that's the shell issue, right? Um, and so that's not too burdensome. It, it's, it, and so that's okay. And the other po- and- among p- other possible requirements. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that's where the sort of the gray area is. But you know, there's. But I mean, he also then, says that. I mean, it's, it's also said that it's possible. I mean, I think in the in the majority. Okay. Uh, but here's here's the next sentence. Unlike New York's main issue regime, those challenge regimes do not grant open end discretion. Okay. So you're right. Discretion. He doesn't like discretion. The majority does not like discretion. Um, does not grant open discretion and do not require a showing of some special need for himself. Uh, uh, apart from self-defense, so they're also saying a special need, this this point you could have a special need apart from self-defense is a, is a problem too. So if self-defense is enough. If you, what Kavanaugh's saying, I think in a few different places is self-defense. If you have, if you want, if you um, you know, if you have a just what kind of legitimate need to have a self-defense, um, you basically can carry a gun outside the home. There's no there's no way to just like restrict that. I think with this decision. Um, you know, so he's saying, yeah, those those forty three states are okay. I mean, everyone agrees with with that. But that's just you know, that's basic stuff. That's like a, you know, mental health records, trading in firearms. There's nothing special. There's nothing you have to be some kind of you know. It, the default is you get the gun, and I think the problem with the New York is the what default is you can't. And yeah, it's discretionary too, which they don't like. Um, but but you know, it's, they can't make it like you know, you have to bench press two hundred fifty pounds or you know something objective. That's not going to work. Uh, the the idea is that there's a right here and you can't infringe. So California, I mean, like everyone, you know, everyone's look agrees with me because California, you know, because if if you're right, then that they will go tomorrow and they will do something more restrictive, right? And so they would do that. I just saw California uh, basically said that they're 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 they have this uh, same kind of law. They're not going to be able to enforce it anymore. California, you know, tomorrow, if they could, would do something more uh, restrictive. If if you were right, they would all be doing this, and you're, you know, they're they're not talking like that's going to happen. 
Well, I mean, it would, it would take up time. It would take some time for California to set up a new regulatory regime because California was one of the states is a state who had a subjective regime comparable to New York. So here's the political story. I mean, California moves to fortified, fortified concealed carry limits after high call. So, uh, they, they said they were that California's concealed carry permitting rules will almost certainly become more lax under a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Um, although Democratic officials quickly moved to take advantage of where the high court allowed them to fortify their laws. So, you know, there's a California understanding here, it looks like. Uh, so Democratic attorney general, state legislators, um, uh, they announced legislation. So they're already doing legislation that would bar concealed firearms in places like courthouses, um, and schools and requires upper against to undergo assessments for whether they are dangerous to others. So California is actually moving. I mean, these people could move fast, um, especially on a hot button issue like guns. And what they're doing is not restrictive. They're saying, you know, whether they are dangerous to others and then include criminal uh, background checks and restraining orders. That's what California is doing. They're going to do that. They're going to do that. They're going to make criminal records. Well, well then, but then California could argue that someone who they're claiming is unusually predisposed to violence does not no, meet because, the because quotes, the, the standard right of being quote ordinary and law abiding. I, I, I think that the, I think a court would, I think a court would over, would, would throw that out. I mean, ordinary, ordinary does like, you know, like the, would they, would know, they, would they throw it out? I'm not sure because the, a California state court is going to have a different interpretation of what constitutes the, a quote, historic, historical tradition of gun regulation than a court, in uh, Georgia, yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, that's right. Uh, it would be in the. Uh, it would be in the. This a case like this would be in the federal. Court. And also, by the way, in the in the in the majority opinion, there's a footnote. So this is written by Clarence Thomas, where he says, "Quote: To be clear, nothing in our analysis should be interpreted to suggest the unconstitutionality of the 43 states. 43 states. Oh, so yeah. it's 43. Shall issue licensing regimes." Because these licensing regimes do not require applicants to show an atypical need for armed self-defense, yeah, the typical they do not necessarily prevent law-abiding right. responsible typical, citizens from exercising their exactly. Second Amendment right to the, carry. Well, the whole point here is everyone agrees. The typical citizen must have a right to bear arms. Now, if you show like California, you know, this is what educate, there's always edge cases, right? Any decision. So California could come back and say, okay, you are at the 95th percentile of testosterone, right? You cannot have a gun, right? Or something like that. But if they do something which excludes like half the population or like even like a third of the population, just it becomes normal not to have a gun. I think you can't, you can't do that. So I think this is, this. you're right. There could be an edge case. But I think the, the, the tenor of the decision is, is things have to get less restrictive than what New, New York and California have. They can't get more restrictive. I think that's, that's, that's key. I don't know. They seem to be emphasizing pretty expressly that the decision should not be interpreted to bear on the constitutionality of individual restrictions. So, I mean, what about the common... What about the, the the very widespread restriction on twenty year olds from obtaining a handgun? A twenty year old who's otherwise a an ordinary law abiding citizen. I mean, can is this decision? Are we to now believe that this decision shows that they're being unconstitutionally deprived of the ability to get look, a handgun? Every, look, every case, every 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 court decision is like this, where you could say, "What about this?" Uh, what about that? And basically what, what they're doing is they're pushing the law 
in a direction, right? They're saying, okay, before you could not, you know, you, you, they're saying this is a serious right that courts are supposed to take seriously. Basically, what California and New York were doing, that is like too burdensome. And you cannot go as burdensome as that or more burdensome. Now, you could do something and exactly what you can do and where the law, uh, line is. Um, okay, we know for sure that um, background checks and, you know, the 43 states, what they do, that we all, we know that's okay, right? We know that California and New, and New York, they go too far with what they require for concealed carry. Now, where exactly, you know, you can, you can uh, do something and get away with it, you know, people can litigate that. But I, I, I don't think it's, it, I think it's unquestionably true that the gun laws becomes more, become more lax uh, in these blue states with this. Yeah, I think in practice, it pro- they probably do become more, more lax, uh, no, there was, um, there's this guy, Jonathan Adler, who's a law professor, I think it's George Mason and, uh, is like a contributor to, oh no, not, I think he was formerly at, he's at, you know, Case Western and he writes for the Vol, uh, what, the Volok Conspiracy, how do you, I don't know how you pronounce that, the libertarian, like, group blog. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said... That uh, he basically said it's narrow. Um, it's a narrow decision, and yeah, this, this the, 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 the decision seems fairly narrow and it undercuts the existing gun licensing regimes in only a handful of states. So, yeah, and he says that uh, the opi- nothing in the opinion cast doubt on the constitutionality of any particular. Gun regulation of a, any particular. I don't think that's right. Any particular gun regulation is that what he says? Oh, he doesn't say that. He says uh, he's replying to someone here. He's just saying that he's replying to someone's on. But I can't. I'm, t- I'm not summarizing it well. Yeah, but basically, the, the, basically, I mean, the, the, the really decision says- does not cast doubt, does not affirm or deny the constitutionality of certain types of restrictions on gun ownership that a lot of people who are pro-Second Amendment would like to have ruled unconstitutional because, according to Adler, the the thrust of it in terms of the tangible effect on law is simply to to eliminate these particular kinds of enforcement regimes. I mean, think, think about it like this, okay? So before this decision, I mean, 95% of New York, people who live in New York, can't carry a handgun outside the home, okay? Whatever it is, you have to be Donald Trump, you have to be a... Now, like, what's permissible is something where at least, like, 80% of people maybe are allowed, right? Whatever, you know, whatever restrictions. So that, that's, like, a difference. That's, like, from almost everyone is denied the right to, can't, uh, to concealed carry to... Most people are allowed to consider. I think that's that's sort of that's how to understand the difference is pretty important. Yeah, I mean, I think that's plausible. I mean, we'll we'll see what the actual practical implementation is in New York. I, I don't know that it's necessarily a sure thing that a substantially larger number of people are going to be able to get a gun in New York. I mean, it's, I'm saying it's definitely possible. I'm saying it's not clear. Uh, or it's not doesn't seem to me incontrovertible that that's going to happen in a state like New York given the vagaries around the law and given the relatively narrow scope of the actual change to law that it did you read uh, did you read Heller do you see Heller Uh, I I have in the past I mean I haven't haven't read it it recently yeah 
Okay. Well, if you go, if you can remember, if you can go back and look at it, see if you have the same idea that it's sort of a because like law. I mean, post Heller, a lot of states introduced fairly sweeping gun control regulations. Yeah, but not 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 uh, about gun in your ho- in your home. That's what Heller. Um, yeah, that's no, what Heller. That's is. true. So, yeah. So, but, but, that, but that's, that's because but that's because the the court struck down a particular statute in Washington D.C. that prohibited the ability of people to possess a handgun in their home. Right. 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 So the law matter. I mean, the law, the implementation matter. And you could say, well, they could have, you know, put up all these barriers and stuff. But you know, in the end, did it matter? This is the, uh, this is going to matter. I, you know, I think you know these guys aren't. <laughs> it's all, you know these guys are. Uh, they believe in the Second Amendment. Well, how, do you, I mean, I, I, I don't know this off the top of my head. Do you, uh, I wonder how much easier in practice it is today to get a handgun permit in D.C. compared to 2008 when Heller was uh, decided? I mean, I'm sure it's it might it's probably got to be somewhat easier. <laughs> Um, but I'd be curious how that could, would be quantified. Yeah. I mean, you could look at over time, like the number of handguns being sold in the country. Uh, well, I mean, you gotta, you gotta confine it to DC in order to understand that impact. Well, well, yeah. Well, the thing, I mean, the the court decision applies right everywhere. Uh, so it would, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, um, the way from previous sales. So, Let's see if I can find this. But I'm saying, but DC would be the most is was the most directly impacted by that decision in yeah. the sense that the particular statute that was in effect in DC was eliminated. Yeah, I would be. I mean, I would be surprised if it if it didn't. If, if it didn't, then you know the conservative movement and this is the conservative people are justices are pretty dumb because they're writing decisions that end up end up not mattering. Not even the statute, you know, or even the place where they're being applied. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's move let's move on from that. I mean, I, I I'm not I'm not giving a, I'm not say, saying I have a ton of certitude as to the impact of this decision, but this was just my uh-huh. amateur impression. Um, there there was another case today we just wanted to quickly touch on because I've wasted a lot of time fighting on Twitter with people about it, but I think it's actually pretty significant. Um. It's a decision which uh, I would contend, and I did read the whole thing, pretty the right to receive a Miranda warning if you're in police custody. Um, And hardly anyone is probably even aware that this decision was handed down today because, of course, it doesn't really bear on any kind of culture war flashpoints. But what the majority ruled, and this was a conservative, the conservative judge, uh, justices ruled in a block 6-3 in favor of this. Um, mm-hmm. It ruled that although the court affirmed, meaning the majority affirmed that Miranda rights are still constitutional rights. I mean, they're rights that are afforded by the Constitution. They reaffirmed that precedent. Nonetheless, this particular constitutional right cannot serve as grounds for citizens to seek civil redress 
in the event that their Miranda rights are uh, violated. So, for example, if you are put on trial and convicted of a crime and thrown in prison and it subsequently comes out that your Miranda rights have been violated, um, say the chief of police knowingly extracted a confession from you uh, in order to gain incriminating evidence and therefore violated your Miranda rights, you nonetheless have no ability now to seek damages against that police chief. So any avenue for seeking compensatory relief from uh, government agents has not been, if they violate this particular constitutional right has been shut off by the conservative majority. Um, and, you know, Kagan in her dissent said that the elimination of this ability to seek relief injures the actual right, meaning the right that was conferred by the Miranda decision um, against self-incrimination. And, uh, yeah, but the conservatives pretty much voted in a block. And I, I think a lot of people are under the wrong impression much of the time that conservative, the conservative justices are really all about restraining government power and preventing government from infringing on the civil liberties of all citizens. I mean, it's kind of understood, at least nowadays, that conservatives are going to be more inclined to do that. Well, especially on criminal justice issues and kind of core civil liberties issues, more often than not, the conservative justices are the one eroding those kinds of protections. Um, And I think that could possibly have a potentially even bigger day-to-day practical impact on just jurisprudence in the U.S. than the, the gun decision because... Effectively, what it does is significantly diminish the just overall potency of Miranda protections. Because if you're not, if a state actor now has no threat of being penalized for violating Miranda rights, then he has less and less incentive to adhere to the Miranda requirements. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a pretty ominous ruling and it's but but it's in keeping with a series of ominous rulings that have gradually whittled away over the years at the uh, kind of viability of of Miranda and this has been a long-term project of the conservatives especially Thomas uh, Alito and uh, previously Scalia Scalia once wrote a furious dissent in 2000 that I reread today Uh, it was joined by Thomas where he demands that uh, the Miranda decision just be over, overruled. Um, Starry decisis be damned. He thinks that it was wrongly decided and that there is no constitutional right to be apprised that you have, that a, uh, somebody in police custody has the right to remain silent and anything that they say could be used against them. So. Well, the, I mean, the Miranda thing was a judicial innovation. I mean, a conservative jurisprudence doesn't just mean you protect government from 
uh, you know, you just protect people from government no matter what the circumstances, you know, so something like the Miranda rights. I mean, there's no there's nothing, you know, you can't find that from the plain text of the Constitution. The, the police have to affirmatively tell you, like, you can stop talking to them. Like, you know, there's nothing in there that says that if you just want to blurt out, you know, I, di- I did it. I mean, there's nothing, you know, uh, there's nothing in the Constitution. So it was, it was sort of an innovation. I, I tend not to... Um, not not to worry all all much much about that. I, I don't know how much of the there was a lot of these innovations in criminal law in the 1960s, and some of them are real, like you know, no search and seizure. Uh, you know, that's the Fourth Amendment, the Snowden stuff. Uh, that you know, that gets into that that gets to uh, these these things, which are you know based in the Constitution. Things like the Miranda, Miranda rights. You know, there's also a, thing, a doctrine called you know, and I didn't read anything about this case, so I can't you know talk too much of, too much about the specifics here. But there also there's there is also a doctrine. Of, qualified immunity where you basically can't sue the government for in their personal capacity for anything so if like the irs agent like you know screws up and charges me like a bunch of money like i cannot personally uh sue him it's the same thing with you know any other government well you can you can uh, you can you can sue the official but you'd just be suing the jurisdiction i mean that's why you're the so if you sued the officer who you're saying deprive you of the rights that the 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 entity that's going to be liable is like the municipality that the officer works for. Is that what so qualified immunity? Qualified immunity doesn't necessarily um, uh, negate the potential desirability of having this um, avenue available to seek redress if your Miranda rights have been violated. Mm. Uh, so this is uh, this is. Uh, this is about um, okay, okay. Okay, so I see what this is. Now, this is—I think this is a qualified immunity case, um, and because there's an exception to qualified immunity, I think under Section 1983. Um, and, but they're saying that. Uh, uh, let's see here. Mm, but but the Miranda right is not there. Uh, is not because of the Fifth Amendment. So you have to if you violate if your Fifth Amendment is violated. I think they have, that's a, an exception to qualified immunity, but. Um, but uh, you know the Fifth Amendment is the Miranda rights is not in the Fifth Amendment. Well, because uh, any constitution, any constitutional right violation would have. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe I'm misremembering this in its particulars. But I th- I thought the idea was that rights that are expressly constitutional rights, which mean flow directly from. The Constitution are not just like a quote civil right or something like that. Um, those supersede qualified immunity in certain instances, and uh, although maybe not, maybe I should just shut up because I'm pretty sure the idea wasn't that like qualified immunity wasn't being contested in this ruling. Yeah, the okay. ruling was whether yeah, just, I, I well, the lawsuit yeah, could be I brought. I shouldn't assume this is about qualified immunity. I, I don't know. So yeah, this is not. I didn't read the case. So I shouldn't. I shouldn't comment really on it either. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, if you're into civil liberties, I think it's worth taking a look at if you're curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a conservative argument that, that Scalia would make where he's saying that Miranda is not found in the plain text of the Constitution, so therefore it was kind of spuriously just invented as, as a right. I mean, that's potentially one conservative way of looking at it. Another would be that, you know, constraining the punitive, this may more think of as a libertarian 
type argument, but constraining the punitive power of the government to extract incriminating evidence from people in police custody, um, that's a principle that ought to be pursued. Um, You know, there was no right, there was no even right to an attorney until sometime in like the 1960s. Yeah, in the 60s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so like a lot of these, I mean, there's, that's not, you know, nothing in the Constitution says the government has to pay for your lawyer, right? You have rights. So yeah, a lot of these things are, you know, not necessarily directly following from the Constitution, but civil libertarians do like them. And that's not the same as, you know, uh, conservative jurisprudence. Yeah, that's true. Um, But, you know, it, it is sort of interesting to me on occasion when you get these rulings and the conservatives are on the side of the argument, meaning the conservative jurists are on the side of the argument that manifestly empowers the government to subject citizens to punitive consequences and even, you know, arguably violate their civil liberties. Uh, It seems like now there's a bit of a dissonance there because there's this growing impression that liberals are the ones who want to, you know, like stifle, stifle core constitutional uh, guarantees like free speech or something um, based on their newly invigorated ideological agenda. And yeah, you know, in the confines of the court, the definitely the jurists, I mean, I mean, and this used to always be the impression, right? In the, in the eighties, if you were associated with like, the ACLU or something, if then you were assumed to be just a liberal, uh, an absolutist on issues around, you know, criminal justice or something. Um, and, and, and civil liberties. Now I think it's, there's kind of more and more an assumption that civil, uh, civil liberties are going to be more consistently upheld by those with a conservative legal philosophy. And that just doesn't seem to be the case very often given you know the the jurisprudence of the right wing of the supreme court especially guys like alito and i I I don't think anyone's confused that when it comes to rights for criminals um that the you know the left is more excited about that data the right is less enthusiastic about you know, restricting speech for being racist or sexist on things like, you know, the uh, NSA spying. Conservatives tend, Republicans tend to vote more, you know, in favor of this stuff than the Democrats are more civil libertarian. So I don't know if people think, you know, or if people do think this, they're mistaken that, you know, Democrats are uh, more sort of anti individual protection of individual rights across the board. I think, yeah, that's clearly not true. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if, if I, if some, nor- like, maybe. Right-leaning normie on Twitter was presented with the scenario that you know, in a, okay, tomorrow it's going to be ruled by the Supreme Court that if you are arrested, convicted, and imprisoned, and it then turns out you had been wrongly arrested, convicted, and imprisoned because a government agent decided to violate your constitutional rights by illegally and unconstitutionally extracting an inadmissible confession from you 
And now, once you get out of prison, when, once you're, you've uh, gotten out of your wrongful imprisonment, the court says you no longer have any ability to seek compensatory damages out of, uh, from the government agents who facilitated that wrongful imprisonment. I'm not sure that – I think you get mixed <laughs> guesses as to uh, which ideology the judges who rendered that decision would be coming from. Yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about the law, so yeah, I would, I would not be uh, surprised. But um, yeah, I think, I think maybe, maybe you're right for the average person. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's touch on uh, Lithuania mania. Um, what are your thoughts on Lithuania? You know, the Lithuanians. I mean, have found my Twitter account. It's amazing the um, the troll. You know, the level of trolling activity. Um, the the number of people who's uh, like I'll so put it like this: Every time I have a viral tweet, like on foreign policy, like criticizing some aspect of American foreign policy or you know Ukrainian policy or something like that, if it ever goes viral, like all the people who hate that like tweet, the pro-Ukraine and pro-war, you know, the more hawkish people um, will find it and like start attacking. Now that doesn't happen with any other issue. Like if I have a tweet that goes viral, yeah, same here. Or, same here. I know exactly what you're talking about. As you can imagine, I've so, been yeah, subject to it as well. Yeah, it's like it's sometimes like all conservatives will retweet my thing, but then liberals won't find it or, or vice versa. Um, but no, the Ukrainian people, you know, they're 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 maybe widely distributed across ideologies, so they're sort of everywhere, and so they find stuff, or sometimes you know, or and or possibly you know, there's some kind of um, manipulation of social media going on, um, and I think unquestionably that has to be true. And the, you know, a large portion of the people who are responding to me start, uh, you know, their accounts started in March 2022 or February or May, or even May 2022. Uh, I, I pointed this out, and some people responded, "Oh no, you're just, you know, you're just cherry picking. I'm a real person, you know." And then, yeah, some people like were, have had accounts since like 2012. So like, not everyone is a bot, but if like, you know, like. 30% of them on like every Ukraine thing is like somebody who joined in like March, 2022, no other issue is like this. Um, so, you know, I don't doubt there are real people who, you know, who, go, who get swept in this stuff, but the fact that there are like so many, you know, sort of artificial sources, like, you know, uh, pumping up, pumping out the same message um, is going to reach a lot of people and it's going to bring those people uh, there. So yeah. Those- yeah. Just, just a quick note on that. I think I probably have, I might have mentioned this to you directly actually, but for the first month or two after the war started, I was inundated with the most intense barrage of trolling that I had ever experienced before on Twitter. And I've experienced a pretty intense trolling on Twitter over the years. And a large percentage of that trolling was from accounts that were created in either February or March. Um, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's conceivable that there are certain people who hadn't been users of Twitter before who just wanted to make an account because it's exciting to follow the war on Twitter. Um, but there also seemed to be a distinctly uh, inorganic component to it. And you know, I can't prove it. I'm not asserting this as fact, but it is the case that uh, Ukraine – mounted an extremely aggressive uh, so uh, strategy on a, on a number of fronts online in order to advance its cause. So, I mean, is it out of the question that they would also be launching bots or like affiliated organizations would be launching bots? Uh, no, I don't think so. Again, I don't know that for a fact, but 
doesn't seem crazy. Yeah. Another thing about this is every time, um, so, you know, there's a law in Germany that if somebody reports one of your tweets in Germany, like the German government uh, says Twitter has to tell you. So sometimes I'll get an email like from uh, Twitter saying someone, you know, accordance with German law, somebody in Germany reported your tweet. And it happens every single time. It's one of these anti, you know, NATO tweets that goes viral. So somebody in, you know, Germany is trying to get my, you know, tweets taken down. And it rarely happens for any other issue, any other controversy. It's not like there are a lot of people in Germany you know, sitting there like reporting me to Twitter. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot, I mean, going on here. I think it's probably not just, I mean, it's not just Ukraine. It's probably the US and the UK. Um, you know, there was a propaganda, the, the, there was this, all the stuff came out about this PR campaign that Ukraine had during uh, Syria, which wasn't even, you know, which wasn't even like something that the UK had during Syria. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, this, you know, so yeah, like, yeah, there's a lot of intelligence. I mean, to do this, to make bots and have them Especially if you're like, you know, the like, you know, where does the pressure come from Congress? The pressure comes to like cut down on like Russian propaganda, right? No, nobody from Congress is going to come after you for allowing Ukrainian, pro-Ukrainian, uh, you know, propaganda there. So the social media, you know, has an incentive not to do anything about this uh, stuff or not, you know, not to care about it. <coughs> uh, but yeah, yeah I had it. I had it. Uh, I, the revelation came out this week that I personally was referred to the a an agent of the UK intelligence services for potential investigation. And a journalist, Paul Mason, who's kind of a wacko, made this referral uh, because he said I uh, had intruded on his big pro-war left-wing union march in London back in April. Um, so his email somehow got pilfered and uh, <laughs> the gray zone put out this week that uh, he was emailing this his little contact at the in the uh, in the UK intelligence sphere to uh, gently suggest that my uh, reasons for being in the UK be cordially investigated. Oh, Richard's out. Knew this would happen. Happens at least once a call-in. It's almost like a tradition now. Oh, I made him a caller. Sorry. Invite to speak. Uh, yeah. how, how they, so this guy reported you and then they got his email right away at the gray zone? No, like maybe two weeks or so ago, um, a tranche of uh, gray, the gray zone started publishing articles based on emails they had obtained from Paul Mason, who is this, he was a, formerly a journalist at the BBC for a long time. Now he's kind of like a left-wing like activist-type journalist um, who was even seeking to be essentially nominated as a Labour MP candidate recently. Um, and so the first round of, the, the first article that they published showed that he had constructed what he called like a mental map of all the left-wing pro-Putin actors that are, you know, degrading the UK. And so he had Jeremy Corbyn on there. Uh, He had different like media organizations on there and figures and all this. And so, you know, that came out and caused a bit of a stir because he was basically in trying to enlist the UK intelligence apparatus to investigate people who he regards as kind of uh, sa- saboteurs of 
the organized left in the UK. Um, and then most re- more recently, two days ago or so, uh, the next tranche of emails were published and uh, one of them was him reporting me to his intelligence services contact. And he even made it seem like uh, he ca- I was a physical danger because he alleged that I was, quote, getting in the face of prominent participants in the protest. And by that he meant that I leisurely walked up to a member of parliament who was there and asked him if I could interview him. And he said, yeah. And then we conducted a brief interview. That was me, you know, aggressively getting in the face of a, uh, of an elected official, according to Mason. So you know, but kind of giving this impression that I'm, you know, a physical threat of some kind um, to, to an intelligence agent. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, no, who knows what, what will, we'll, I, I doubt anything will come of that. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But uh, yeah. So the, the, I mean, the, on the specifics of Ukraine, I mean, I've never seen, uh, I've rarely seen a case where a country was doing something for, like, no, you know, for it was so obvious that a country was doing something for no other reason um, than to basically, uh, you know, stir up a conflict. Um, you know, co- you mean Lithuania? Red- Lithuania? Yes, exactly. Not yeah. Ukraine. Ukraine? No, yeah, Lithuania. In this case, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. You before. said you said you said Ukraine. Uh, no, no, it was, it was, I meant Lithuania. Lithuania yeah. in this case. Um, yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're, so they're basically stopping like like building materials from going into uh, uh, Kaliningrad. I think it was like 50% of the materials that were going in through, through the railway. Now I, I haven't seen what the, I looked at a map. I mean, so it has to, it can't, Lithuania is not the only country it goes through to get to uh, Kaliningrad. It has to go through at least Latvia, um, maybe Estonia. Um, so it seems like if it's, I, I couldn't find, I couldn't find the exact, if this is exactly right, but yeah, there's no way to get to, uh, oh, I see. Belarus. No, okay, well, so you, you can go through. You go through Belarus. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe that's maybe that's where the railroad goes. But a- yeah. anyways, um, yeah. So there's no. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing here that's going to. Um, you know, it's not going to. You know, things going to Kaliningrad is not going to stop Russia from winning the war. Uh, it's not going to material. Maybe it'll you know hurt the living standards of the uh, couple million people who live uh, in Kaliningrad. Um, but yeah, this is something where it's like if it actually you know Russia could be provoked into doing something um, in response. Uh, There's actually four hundred, I guess four hundred thirty thousand people who live in uh, Kaliningrad. So it's like yeah, it's tiny. It's nothing as far as you know the uh, population of Russia. Um, and you know, if you real if you really make life hard for them, and you know, this is this is the only way. This uh, you know, this is the only way to get from uh, you know. The, so look, I'm looking just looking at the map here. So Belarus, yeah, it looks like the only way to get to uh, there is through either Poland or Lithuania. I don't Poland bar- just barely. There's probably no railroad there. Uh, so yeah, Lithuania. I mean, it's completely dependent on Lithuania. And if you you know, you just cut off part of Russia from the re- from the rest of the country. Um, that's going to be a problem now. Lithuania says they're just enforcing EU sanctions, which, like the EU, this is not the EU's position, um, and so this is obviously, you know, just a kind of uh, uh, justification. But the president of Lithuania, right, is today in the Washington Post saying, you know, we cannot have negotiations, uh, persuasion, or concessions to Russia. I mean, so there's there's clearly a uh, 
you know, there's clearly an agenda here. Um, and there's just no ability, you know, some people think that it's like the U.S. is like telling you the way to do this. I don't think so. I mean, I think these Eastern European countries are operating under their, uh, their own accord and they have their own agenda here. And I don't think the U.S. is going to tell them not to do this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, a, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous thing. And, you know, I, you know, I wonder what the sort of the next step is, is going to be. Um, because, you know, Russia, I, I'm sure can make life miserable for Lithuania too, right? They're surrounded, they're pretty much, they're to a large extent surrounded too. So, you know, I wonder sort of what, you know, what the end game is of this. Well, the Baltic states since the onset of the war have been the most extreme in, uh, yeah, but Lithuania in, 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 in their demands. Most like I don't hear much from Estonia. Like I don't hear much from Estonia or Latvia. It seems like it's mostly. Um, there have been a couple of extremes. I mean, Estonia in March became the first NATO country to formally call for a no-fly zone. I mean, it obviously, it wasn't binding, but the parliament passed a resolution calling on NATO to impose a no-fly zone in Ukraine. Um, I forget which Baltic state it was. It might have been. I think it was either Latvia or. Uh, Estonia, that I think it might have been both actually that they they passed basic a law basically criminalizing denial of Russian crimes, and then, yeah. you know, the wording is so vague. It's basically anybody who has a vaguely pro-Russian opinion could potentially be criminalized. Yeah. Um, you know, so basically they 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 took the laws that ban Holocaust denial elsewhere in, in Europe and imported them into this situation vis-a-vis Russia. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there have been some pretty extreme actions. Obviously, they don't have the resources or the manpower to back up their extreme kind of symbolic actions. Yeah. I think, you know, Lithuania, when I was seeing people defending the righteousness of this action they were saying you know good finally someone will quote stand up to russia (laughs) so it really it's just about kind of symbolic or emotional gratification for some people and i'm I'm sure you know within lithuania there are a lot of people in the population and in the uh in the government who do have like this nagging to say the least desire to to quote do something to quote stand up to Russia and so this is what they've come up with. It was fu- the the, um, the prime minister of uh, Lithuania yesterday put out a little video on Twitter where she was vehemently denying that there actually is a blockade on Kaliningrad and that anybody who says that Lithuania is blockading uh, Kaliningrad is just trafficking in Russian propaganda, of course. Um, and it was funny because, <laughs> I mean, I can recall people making that same point argument about how, like, the U.S. is not really embargoing Cuba. Um, because the argument that the prime minister made was that you know, certain goods are still able to be transported. So Lithuania, I mean, according to the BBC, says only 1% of Russian freight was affected. Um, so that doesn't, if that's true, that doesn't sound like a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows, though? I mean, that's kind of yeah. hard to believe. I mean, are, does, does that mean that 
One percent. The, well, they're, they're claiming they're only they're only implementing EU sanctions. So, if so, is, are EU sanctions really that toothless? Well, they need to be. They need to be. Well, it's Russia to. I mean, it's Russia to Russia, isn't it? Are, are there? Uh, uh, are they? Are they? Are they preventing Lithuanian um, stuff from going to Russia? Or are they preventing stuff from Russia to go to Lithuania? Russia to go to Russia? No, 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 no. They're they're preventing they're preventing stuff from like mainland Russia from going to another part of Russia. Yeah, As, yeah. I don't I don't know if sanctions. I don't know like sanctions say you can't you know pass Russia can't pass through uh, something to go for because it's, it's not trading with anyone else. Um, like the, 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 the. Well, well, anyway, I mean, this this kind of gets to a theme that we, you and I have discussed a bunch of times now on Colin, which is that you know my basic view that the longer this goes on, the more oppor- the more opportunities there are going to be for something unexpected to arise that could cause wider escalation than maybe people can currently contemplate, and yeah, you know, this seems like one of those scenarios potentially. I mean, who knows if there's some faction within Lithuania that wants to do something crazy and to potentially instigate you know direct conflict between NATO and and Russia um, you know who who knows if you know Russia might I mean that Russia threatened to retaliate in some fashion against Lithuania and they held um, military exercise uh, naval exercises right off the coast of Lithuania and the Baltic Sea after this was announced, and you know there's uh, there's always there's always a possibility that something there is going to go awry and there could be some confrontation. So it's just like a, it's just another example of what I've been trying to get at in this um, in this discussion, and um, you know it's just it's just another sort of uh, domain for potentially escalatory conflict. Because yeah. the because the war is being protracted. Yeah, yeah. This is this stuff is. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're unquestionably right that the more the war goes on, the worse the risk. Now, the, you know, the more the the most likely, you know, the most likely risk is at the beginning because people are making straight as time goes on and people get a little bored with it. But you're right; it, it, it never goes down to. Uh, it never goes down to zero. I mean, Biden's poll numbers are actually shocking. So if you want to, like, you know, yeah. understand, like, you know, if you want to understand, like, what might, you know, push in the other direction, it's, it's, uh, it's probably that. I don't think they ever expected it you know, to fall this, this badly. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't think he, I don't, I think he's sort of stuck. I mean, I think the Ukraine hysteria among elites, you know, he's not like just interacting with the people. He's interacting with, you know, his cabinet and people in the State Department and the media, um, you know. So it's uh, you know I, I think I think he's in a place where you know politically he could pivot. Like anything short of him saying you know Russia take over Ukraine, I don't care. It's it's not it's going to still. I mean the people are going to get the impression that he's uh, uh, you know that he's still um, uh, you know he, he basically doesn't get, he cares more about you know he even says this explicitly like do you would you you know want. Putin to take over Ukraine uh, and have a little bit of cheaper gas, and it's like yes, like most Americans do not care about you know Ukraine, and they care about uh, the economic situation. Um, so yeah, this is bad politically. I don't think I think Biden is stuck. I don't think Biden can do anything, but I think whoever the next president is, whether it's Democrat or Republican, 
like once they're not if they're not like coming in like deeply involved in this uh you know i think they're gonna think twice about sacrificing um you know american living standards for foreign policy goals i think i think we've got a clear uh indication of how that turns out I just don't think there's any evidence that Biden or his team, and particularly Biden himself, are looking at his political problems and his cratering polling numbers and saying to themselves, oh, geez, in order to remedy this, we have to change course on Ukraine. I don't think they're saying that, in other words... A policy shift on Ukraine is how they're going to solve no, the political I don't problem. So. Yeah, I, I don't think they allow. I don't think. That, I mean, that's obvious. I think that's something that could help them. But I think it's you know it's clear that you know I think that they wouldn't even let themselves think that. I think it's a, it's yeah. a religious principle at this point. They might actually think the opposite. They might, they might. say they might they say might. that. Look, the reason our polling numbers are falling now is because. Putin's gas hike. Right? Because, well, well, or that the tide seems to have turned in the war, and you know Ukraine is not as triumphant as they were at least portrayed to be in the initial stage of the war. Um, yeah. so they could they could they could make some kind of calculation that they got to double down on winning the war to enhance their fortunes politically. Yeah, although when the, when the war started, I mean, they, when Ukraine was doing well, Biden didn't really get a bump. I mean, the polls. I think he got a little bit. He got a small one. Yeah, it's a small. It looks like one or two points or something. Uh, I think so, it might have been a little more. I think it might have been a little more. But it wasn't like you know, massive. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, 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 like, but but I think you know, I, I'm curious what your view on this is because you know you've <laughs> you've thought a lot about different ways to interpret the, the policy making the foreign policy making decisions of government officials. Um, I, uh, when the Lithuania thing was happening, I did a, I did a Twitter thread about this and I'm going to write something on it all more extensively eventually. But, um, you know, when, when this Lithuania issue broke out, I cast my, I actually remember for some reason just being in high school and hearing about, the fact that uh, NATO expansion had been approved for the Baltic states and also, you know, a handful of other countries like Romania, whatever, back in 2004, and thinking that it wasn't really like the implications of that were never really examined because um, it wasn't controversial at all at the time. Um, the Senate unanimously approved NATO expansion for the Baltic states. And uh, Romania and Hungary and a handful of others, Slovenia, in 2004. And if you think about it, that's a bit odd because in the 90s, you know, NATO expansion proceeded, you know, first with Poland and Czech Republic in places, but there was at least some debate over it. Like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, the famed senator from New York, who's against NATO expansion. Bill Bradley, senator from New Jersey, who ran for president in 2000, was against it. Um, and a bunch of Republicans were also against it. Um, so there was at least some, there was some debate. It was like a live issue. Uh, and by 2004, it was not really a live issue. And in two, by 2004, that round of NATO expansion was the most aggressive yet. I mean, it had been 
you know, when the Soviet Union dissolved and NATO expansion was first being entertained, the idea of NATO expanding to the Baltic states was fairly widely regarded as like a potential red line or confrontational enough that it might not even be feasible. And then fast forward to 2004 and nobody thought it was particularly controversial at all. And, you know, why was that? Well, interestingly enough, Biden was in charge of, like, r- running the floor vote um, to, to kind of marshal the votes for the approval of the amendment to the NATO treaty to admit the Baltic states and others. Uh, and the vote actually occurred in the first week of uh, May 2003. So in May of 2003, it's funny, you should go back and look at the coverage around this sometimes. sometimes yeah. Because um, in May of 2003, most of the media and a lot of politicians were convinced that the Iraq war had been won. I mean, remember, this was around the t- Bush would then do his mission accomplished speech at this time. Um, they thought that the war had been won. The invasion was completed and it was over. And the U.S. was victorious because um, shock and awe was so successful. And um, Bush, in order to kind of counter these suggestions that the U.S. was going alone or had acted purely unilaterally in Iraq, you know, assembled what they called then the coalition of the willing, right? Where it was basically just, it was like, you know, what, 90 or 95% the U.S., then UK, and then number three, I hope, I'm not, I hope you don't know this so I can tell you. Do you know which country provided the third greatest number of troops for the coalition of the willing in Iraq? Uh, okay, it's not – I didn't hear about a lot of Polish troops, but I did hear a lot of Georgian troops. Was it Georgia? Nope. It was Ukraine. <laughs> uh, really? Yep. Ukraine had the third largest contingent of troops in Iraq in the coalition uh, of the willing. Um, but other countries that provided troops were uh, included all – every country that was admitted to NATO in this 2004 round of expansion contributed troops and logistics and resources, etc., um, either to the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, or both. Uh, most of them, for most of them, it was both to some extent. And so, if you look at how NATO expansion was talked about at that time, basically it was framed as these countries like Estonia, Latvia, and importantly now Lithuania had demonstrated and proven their indispensability to the U.S. and NATO by their loyal participation in the Iraq war and in the wider uh, in the wider war on terror conflicts that the U.S. was involved in at the time. So it and um, you know it, it, Biden himself set praised uh, Lithuania in particular for you know when Biden was speaking on the floor of the Senate in support of this round of NATO expansion in 04, he praised the Baltic states for their willingness to aid the U.S. with troops in its uh, 
invasion of Iraq. So I think it's almost, it's poorly understood or maybe never has been understood that a big reason why that round of NATO expansion was was fast-tracked and really had no debate at all, I, I think it had a lot to do with Iraq. Um, and uh, uh, otherwise, there might have been some disputation over it. Um, but basically, how this was framed was that these countries were owed the reward of being admitted to NATO because... They had been such loyal allies in the war on terror. Yeah. Um, and I, so that's – so now, uh, you know, 18 years later, we're in a situation where the U.S., at least technically, is treaty-bound to come to the military defense of Lithuania – if their you know provocations at the moment result in some kind of armed confrontation, and you know my working theory is that the reason the U.S. is currently in that situation um, comes down in large part to Iraq, <laughs> and um, and in particular, and hilariously enough, the actions of Joe Biden and. George W. Bush in concert with one with one another during the formal sort of ceremony where the admission of these countries into NATO was being celebrated. George W. Bush went out of his way to um, praise Biden by name for having been integral in in, in the effort. Um, so that's something that's almost totally un, unexplored as just sort of a precipitating factor to this. But it also got me to thinking that. I think people really underestimate the extent to which Biden is just incredibly personally and ideologically invested in this cause. I think you know it's one of his actual sincerely held convictions because he's been on this issue for decades, meaning issues around Europe and NATO and so on. Um, you know, he was the he was the chairman the uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years. Um, he was like the top foreign policy guy. For the Dem- he's like the, the Democrats' foreign policy point man for years during this this kind of vital period. So he was like he was. Uh, I read um, that uh, Biden, Bill Clinton in, in the nineties uh, took a overseas trip on uh, Air Force One, and he invited Biden to come along with him because he was seeking Biden's counsel on the Balkans. And you know, Biden was a huge proponent of the uh, NATO intervention in Kosovo in 1999. He's just been like heavily, heavily immersed in these issues. And you know, Obama makes him vice president and gives him the portfolio of Ukraine. And people, you know, I think people will say, "Oh, that's just because he had this bizarre corrupt motive around Hunter Biden getting money from sitting on the board of Burisma." I, I don't deny that that's relevant. It is relevant. But I think probably even more instructive is just like the genuine ideological conviction that Joe Biden has on this issue to the point that he's willing to do, as he did yesterday, to uh, do like a, this faux press conference type deal where he's saying that, look, I'm sorry gas prices are high and we'll 
do what we can to bring them down somewhat. But my fellow Americans, you have to understand that this is just, quote, the price to pay for the um, righteous cause of advancing liberty in Ukraine, which, you know, effectively means advancing the cause of bringing Ukraine into, you know, more more firmly and unreservedly into the umbrella of American military hegemony. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, the Iraq caused there not to be debate on this stuff. It, the first round of NATO contributed to it, contributed to it. Uh, you know, I think they would have done it anyway. I don't think. Yeah, I think they would have done it anyway. I'm just, I think, I'm just saying it contributed to it. Yeah, the, um, yeah, I mean, so like, this is like a reason, you know, uh, so it's like, it's like, yeah, it's funny because that's the justification. Oh, these countries stand with us in Iraq and Afghanistan. And looking back, it's like they were enabling some bad behavior. Um, yeah. The fact that Bush could, you know, say the, you know, Poland and, uh, and, uh, you know, the new Rumsfeld, I mean, this was a big selling point. Rumsfeld's like, oh, you're talking about the you know, Germany and France are, you know, uh, strongly against the war. That's old Europe. We're new Europe, right? The, 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 yeah, yeah. the, the former Soviet bloc countries. Um, so that was, you know, that was a big thing. I think that's a good reason not to have, I mean, there's all kinds of distortions and sort of unhealthiness, um, that are, um, arises when countries, their entire foreign policy, their entire, you know, um, uh, their entire self, you know, their entire um, plan of self-defense is relying on other countries. It's relying on the United States. Uh, so, you know, these Baltic countries are basically defensible. I mean, they're, you know, they, they have like a quarter Russian population in, uh, in uh, Latvia and Lithuania, I think. Um, and, you know, they want, they take away their language rights. They, they, they want to maintain their like language and culture. And like, they don't want to get like sw- even swamped culturally by Russia. And so there's like, you know, there's all this pressure for like on the Russian speakers and like all stuff, go- all the stuff going on with the education system. And it's like, Russia doesn't like this, obviously, and it has problems. It's, it, it, this is not because Russia wants to reestablish Soviet Union. It's normal sort of human nationalism. Um, and it's not so like some great principle that the U.S. has that like everyone in the territory of Latvia or Lithuania has to speak like those languages and nobody can speak Russian or have cultural ties to Russia. Uh, it just puts us on the side of these countries um, in these sort of, you know, ethno-linguistic disputes that, you know, don't matter to the U.S. and don't ultimately matter for the world unless they end up in a, uh, in a uh, you know, in a huge world war. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is, yeah, this is, um, this is, yeah, this is, this is a problem. Um, I, you know, I think these countries till the end of time, you know, will be supporting every mil- American military effort and will be, you know, provoking Russia. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard to see, like, you know, what are they, I mean, what are these, I mean, another interesting thing is how much population these countries are losing. I mean, Lithuania has lost like a third of its population in the last 30 years. They're very old countries. It's not like they're, you know, they have low birth rates and a lot of young people have left. So it's not like they're. Lithuania also has a higher rate of alcohol. Lithuania has a higher rate of alcoholism than even Russia, and I thought Russia was the, <laughs> the leader. Yeah. So Russia's got Russia got better actually over the years. It was yeah, like really had improvements in the last twenty thirty years. Uh, but yeah, I mean these countries aren't in position themselves to like be you know major challengers to Russia, uh, but. I mean, they have a, you know, they have a, they have a reason to think that they're uh, at the center of the world and, you know, that they can, you know, they can act how they want. And this is a problem. This is the, you know, this is, it's always like, you know, 
what's the path to world war? It's always because of some country, like, is just, you know, localized dispute with Russia. And people portray this as, like, Russia is just, like, you know, the, it's a path to uh, uh, taking over Europe. Like, Lithuania and Latvia are, and Ukraine are, like, in the way. And as long as, like, Russia, like, if Russia can roll over these countries, it'll go to Poland and Germany next. And that's, like, that's, like, that's not what's going on. I mean, these, they have disputes. They're, they're like I said, regular ethno-linguistic disputes that have been going on since the beginning of time. Russia would like to settle these disputes on its own terms because it's the bigger power. But then the U.S., you know, and NATO are involved. And so they... Uh, they sort of make these countries feel like, uh, you know, they they are, uh, you know, they're they're more um, motivated to sort of push back on Russia, and you know, this is how this is how you get miscalculation. This is how you get disasters, um, and yeah, I think we should be, uh, yeah, we should we should be aware of like this is this is the you know, most most you know most likely path towards Armageddon if we're going to get there. And just to be clear, I'm not postulating that. Iraq caused there to be no debate over NATO expansion in 2004 or that NATO expansion wouldn't have happened if not for Iraq. I'm simply noting that the stated motivation on the part of George W. Bush and Joe Biden and top officials at that time, or at least part of their stated motivation for fast-tracking the admittance of these countries into NATO was related to Iraq and to the broader war on terror. And I think that is worth noting just because it's another sign that, you know, the consequences of insane foreign policy actions like the war in Iraq can reverberate throughout the years in uh, unexpected or unforeseen ways. And actually, you also saw that in a sense with the rationale that Putin made for why he was invading Ukraine in the first place. I mean, in that speech on February 24th, he cites Iraq and he cites, and he cites the foreign policy actions taken by the U.S. in the relatively recent past, like Iraq, but also Libya, uh, Kosovo, as proving in his mind that the, all these nostrums around the international order and respecting the sovereignty of free states and all this are just hogwash. And uh, therefore that gives him license to invade Ukraine. So. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, with that, should we, uh, let's go to some callers. Sure. And uh, Shelly, you are up. Oh, man, guys, I'm sorry. But before we get into anything, you guys are going to have to endure a little bit of gentle ribbing. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can take it. Nine. I can take it, Shelly. Right, I can't, Shelly. I'm very fragile. And your call-in your call-in show that is supposed to talk to callers uh, started at 9, and you've just taken your first caller one hour and 43 minutes later. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. <laughs> we, have a good, um, we have a good rapport. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a show I mean, and a call-in. That's, that's delightful. But whenever I'm, in, whenever I'm engaging in a call-in show, I do expect to have good rapport between the hosts, but I also expect those hosts to engage... <laughs> That's and a fair. That's a fair point. So, so what you're saying is that we should like break it up more into segments or something, right? So when we like maybe finish a topic, we then take the calls and then move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that would be decent. But then I would also 
I would also say that like the title of your show was Lithuania Mania and World War Three Watch. And I think you guys didn't actually talk about Lithuania. I looked at the time block when you said <laughs> um, it. Was it was not with the courts. It was 58 minutes. Um, so. Hey, I, I appreciate you uh, putting a check on power and being so, so scrupulous in your, in your, in your, in your diligent in your monitoring. Uh, no, no, I just, no, but like, guys, I really encourage, maybe you just need a, maybe you just need a skirt. You know, to like kind of cue you into the chat. Do you want to be our manager, Shelly? Do you want to be the the producer of uh, no. co producer of the show? No, because I'm just going to be our token me. woman. Yeah, I mean, I will be the token woman, but I mean, I'm just saying, if you want me to, I would be happy to like wear a skirt and say, "Excuse me, sir." Someone in the <laughs> chat said this. I'll be happy to perform that function. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I, I did notice now that you mentioned it that there were like a bunch of people on the, the queue who then left the queue. Understandably, because you had about we kept yapping. And now it's just down to me. And I was really I know. trying to figure out. Shelly, if- you're our most dedicated. We, we wanted to weed out anyone who wasn't dedicated enough. We no, I just want your pound. I just want my goddamn pound <laughs> of flesh. <laughs> But before, I just I'm just I'm just so infatuated with uh, Richard that when we get into a like a discursive <laughs> rhythm, I just have tunnel vision. No, you guys, yeah. you guys went on for so long. I did have a decent nap. Um, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I'm sorry, I said gentle ribbing, and I mean it. You guys are great. Which which one was more boring? Hopefully, I'm, I'm guessing me. Okay. You've achieved communism. You've achieved equality. <laughs> very very good job. Um, no, I'm, I'm just going to say... Shelly, in, in, in Britain, mm-hmm. what you're doing right now would be classified as, quote, taking the piss. And I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> well, I'm, it's just it's just in a ribbon. You guys are both great. No one, it, You have 130-something people that are listening, so obviously you have an audience. But, you know, there are some times that... The, I will have to say that there are so many times that normal people very... <clears throat> They, we don't often get the opportunity to talk to people that have such a good um, history and such good knowledge. And so that's kind of the reason why people are sticking around because they really are hoping to actually glean something from you. And even though maybe sometimes questions might seem uninformed or kind of silly, you know, they are things that people are thinking about and they actually really do eva- like appreciate and evaluate your opinions and they take them very seriously. And so I, I'm saying your level of expertise is a benefit, but you guys just kind of got off into the weeds on this one. We get it. We get it, Shelly. And I don't mean that. I don't mean that terribly. No, no, it's, it's, we're, it's, yeah, the criticism is appreciated. I, mean, I, think, I, th- I, think, I think your your most apt suggestion is that calls should be taken more incrementally throughout the show, especially if it stretches, or we can, or we can end, or we can take calls earlier. I mean, we could start. We could do it after one hour and just get through things, or an hour and a half, fifteen you minutes, can, or something. You guys can, you guys can have another two-hour conversation about how you guys are going to effectuate that. But we can have two hours. Uh, we can have another two-hour conversation <laughs> just about the show itself. Well, we have you here yeah, now, so you, you do see it the, off, yeah. do it offline. Just it's like it a, meta, a, me, a meta show. Uh, yeah. So I, I just wanted to say before I get into any before I get into your homework. And I don't want to hear you <laughs> yet. I just want to. I just wanted to talk about like the gun control issue, just real quickly. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that, if you want to talk about the Democratic Party, what they kind of get hung up on as far as gun control goes, 
is that they're more concerned about the efficiency of violence than they are about actually stopping violence. And so they see guns as a very efficient way to cause violence and death. And they're not interested in stopping violence. It's just that if you compare gun violence to knife attacks, that's really more what they're concerned about, which is why I have, I am, I think I'm going to probably run for president and I'm going to run for president on a pro-concealed carry howitzer agenda. What do you think? Which, which, which party are you hoping to be nominated by? The call-in so party? The call-in party or just whatever independent party, but I really think that every, every single... The, 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 the Hanania Appreciation Party? Yes, the Hanania Appreciation Party, whose main <laughs> talking point, whose main agenda point, the what the policy we are going to pass is that every American citizen, um, ten years of age or older, gets a howitzer that you can just pull along and fire wherever you so please. It's an it's an idea. What do you think about tanks? You know the Libertarian oh. Party wants you to be able to own tanks. Are you are you willing to go as far as them? I'm pro tank. Every single American citizen should have seventeen tanks. <laughs> we need tanks. Yeah, we need, we need tanks. tanks. I, yeah, I remember watching a Libertarian Party conference before I knew like what the Libertarian Party was, and they were they were talking about like uh, no restrictions on weapons, and some guy was talking about tanks, and he's like, "Don't you ask like uh, you know someone in a business owner in Koreatown like why he needs a tank?" This was like twenty five years ago. <laughs> Oh it's like, yes, you can imagine before, the scenarios. Yeah, before they were more like fully formed, and they're because like I, I will have to say there are a lot of libertarian voices that I do think are relatively principled, and I could definitely get down with, and you know form like a coalition with. But there, there's a lot of stuff that I agree with. but they're anti-imperialist and they're anti-war stance. I I, I definitely yeah. Well, sorry, to, sorry to break it to you, but if think. sorry to break it to you, but if you think this. Supreme Court ruling from today is going to enhance your ability to obtain a, a tank. You're uh, you're sorely mistaken because the conservative majority goes out of their way to clarify that they are still affirming that a potentially reasonable limitation on the Second Amendment that is supported by quote historical tradition end quote would be to prohibit the carrying of, quote, dangerous and unusual weapons. I just Googled it, and it says you, you're actually legally allowed to buy a tank. Oh, shit. Every Any citizen? Can well, you buy a with tank? A, with a, with yes. a gun turret on top? There are hundreds of thousands of tanks used available for purchase online. However, it is often a complex process. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, there are Could tanks cost- from places that on, like, just display as a historical... Artifact yeah. and stuff. But can I can I buy a Can you buy a gun turret to mount on top of it? Uh let's see. They may, may demilitarize they the tank dealer may demilitarize it by decommissioning the guns. They may. Uh, can you own a tank with a working cannon? In most cases, no. In most cases, <laughs> uh unless they have a federal destructive device permit or license. So there's a kind of license you can get. Uh okay, that's pretty cool. I think that we need to start a GoFundMe for the Hanania Appreciation Party that it runs <laughs> on a pro-tank agenda. And there we go. We have our platform for the future. But anyway, um, we, we kind of talked about Lithuania. And then maybe if you guys have done your homework, we can get into that. But 
I thought um, I'm I'm gonna bring. I took a screenshot of it, and I'm I'm just gonna read you some parts. Uh, did you guys actually happen to read the transcript of Putin's speech? Which, which speech? Uh, his the Saint Petersburg Forum speech from last week. I I think so. I think it was just a couple of days ago. Like at the Economic Forum. They're 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 basically the Russian Davos. Yeah, yeah. I I. I uh... I, I listened to a translation of it. Okay. Well, just um, just for everyone that's listening in, I'm just going to read like a brief section, and then I and then I want to get your guys' opinion on it because I think that it actually was an incredibly important speech, regardless of whether or not you care about it. It's um, he says he's talking about the West. He says, however, the ruling elite of some Western states seem to be harboring these kind of illusions. They refuse to notice notice obvious things, stubbornly clinging to shadows of the past. For example, they seem to believe that the dominance of the West in global politics and the economy is an unchanging eternal value. Nothing lasts forever. Our colleagues are not just denying reality. More than that, they are trying to reverse the course of history. They seem to think in terms of the past century. They are still influenced by their own misconceptions about countries outside the so-called golden billion. They consider everything a backwater or their backyard. They still treat them like colonies and the people living there like second-class people because they consider themselves exceptional. If they are exceptional, that means everyone else is second-rate. Um, I think that he was giving a speech on essentially a transition to a multipolar world, which I think actually is a pretty big issue at the moment. And then whenever he's announcing at the BRICS um, summit that, they, that he is proposing with... Um, uh, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, a currency that's that's um, backed based on commodities. I think that's a pretty big threat to dollar hegemony. And what do you guys think about that? Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I, th- I think Putin and others, other Russian officials, have made this point repeatedly about entering a new era of multipolarity. And they had made this point even before the Ukraine war. Um, you know, I listened, uh, right before the war started, I was listening to some old interviews with uh, Lavrov. And he, was ma- he made this exact same point about this in, like, ineluctable transition into a multipolar international system uh, a couple of years ago. And but clearly they think that the Ukraine war is uh, accelerating that transition, and they seem to be right. I mean, I keep coming back to just being uh, just being just India being the prime example of having bucked the U.S. and in not just in failing to condemn Russia, but in actually increasing the quantities of oil that it purchases from Russia and therefore, you know, funding, in a a sense, the Russian war effort and and undermining the whole plan of economic destruction that the U.S. and and the EU apparently thought was going to be the key to ensuring Putin's defeat. And the alignment with Saudi Arabia, the Qatar nation not doing anything. Right. I mean, like, this is kind of, this is one of the things that I noticed at the very start of this, whenever everyone was screaming and freaking out and they were hanging the flags outside the house. And I started looking at it and I was like, I think, like, and we were, we were diagnosing Putin with brain cancer, you know? 
We were saying he was a madman, and we were saying he was a psycho. I don't think he was. And I think that that's kind of what's gotten missed. And any evaluation that doesn't take that into serious consideration, I don't really think is all that credible. So how do, how do you feel about that? Yeah. India is the most interesting country here because I think, you know, everyone sort of expected China to, uh, you know, be a little bit more uh, pro-Russia. Um, and even probably they've done less than people have expected. Um but the fact that India has become such a big buyer of Russian oil and is like not even really even pretending uh, to go along, you know, uh, full to be enthusiastic about the sanctions, I think is a, is a big deal. They always, I mean, the West always knew China was not going to be on board right. with them. China was already taken as a rival. India, they thought maybe could be a friend, could part of it, can can end up just like Europe, you know, following the U.S. and whatever it does. And India is clearly not going to do that. I mean, even if it doesn't get along with China. Um, and so, yeah, the, the long-term trends are away from the West. And, you know, it's sort of like, will they sort of bow to this reality or will they stay, you know, just as ambitious ever? It reminds you of Biden's poll ratings. I mean, he's going to take, he's going to stick on this path. He'll take the Democratic Party with him. I mean, is that basically what the entire West is going to do? Because... Um, you know, there's no there's no political will to care about this stuff. There's no political will for you know the Ukraine will never matter that much. I mean, even most uh, there was recently a poll of most European countries, and they you know they, their people are overwhelmingly in favor of concessions to end the war. Um, it's going to get worse as time goes on. Uh, so yeah, like it's like it, it, there's there's no way it doesn't get worse. I mean, even if Ukraine starts winning, I mean Russia can just start turning up the heat. So it's like you've basically committed, I mean, Western countries have committed to lowering the standard of living for your uh, people for the sake of geopolitical goals. And there's no reason to think that the voters are going to put up with this for long. Um, so, yeah, I think I think something is going to have to give here. I, I also think that if what you mean in your comments about Putin's sort of like mental capacity is that, as evidenced by his speech in St. Petersburg and maybe other remarks that he's given, Putin, it turns out, is not, in fact, crazy. Contrary to depictions of him in the West as this, this menacing, unhinged tyrant, and is, it, in fact, acting rationally if his goal is to accelerate the erosion of U.S. hegemony and to also accelerate, as mentioned, this conversion of the international order into a more multipolar system. If that is Putin's goal, then the actions he's taken thus far seem to have advanced that goal. And in that sense, he'd be behaving... Rationally, I'm not sure I would personally accept that interpretation of Putin's actions, at least insofar as it's some sort of normative endorsement of his actions, because it seems like you know, there's also been lots of ill effects on the Russian uh, citizenry as a result of the war and as a result of the reaction to the war. That's sort of like a separate issue in terms of like Putin's own goals, if that's what we're going to conceive as his goal – then yeah, I mean, he seems to be taking rational, rational steps toward it. 
Well, I, I kind of tend to agree with that, and that was sort of my initial, even before I was looking at any other type of analysis of the situation, I was kind of like, oh, shit. And so I, I immediately started thinking about the U.S. dollar hegemony, which I think is, is directly under threat. And if you consider how much of the debt that the Chinese own from America, and you consider that we are over-leveraged on debt, and you know they're trying to create a commodity-backed currency with you know five of the biggest like growing economic powers i think the u.s is in for some really hard times which is kind of one of the reasons why i don't necessarily blame biden for the inflation type stuff i think it was already coming um and so i, I think some of that stuff might be a little bit politically immature in that way. I think this is just something that was going to happen. Yeah, I think it's, that's probably true. When, you, when administration officials are asked about the culpability of Biden for inflation, they'll point to the fact that inflation is also up by quite a lot in other countries, uh, even more than the U.S., I mean, like, UK and whatnot, you know that's that's just fact. That is true, and it's factually true. Um, I suppose you can make a counter argument that you know the U.S. is like uh, you know when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. So the ultimate, if any if any policy decisions could be made to have an effect on kind of global inflation or at least inflation in the West, those decisions would probably have to be made in the U.S. Just like you know the financial crisis in '08 started on Wall Street and then spread to other countries. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's obviously a sort of amateurish strain of this kind of criticism, which does reductively just blame Biden on this hyper-partisan level for, for inflation that's probably not accurate. But all, he, he does, on the, on the other hand, oh, he's, he's Biden, is, Biden, is, Biden is at least claiming that... He did take policy action that has exacerbated inflation by taking these retaliatory actions against uh, Russia. So he's ascribing to himself some degree of no, I mean, the responsibility for inflation. Yeah, the stimulus bills were pretty historically unprecedented, and a lot of smart people like Larry right. But Biden said. Biden denies that that has influenced inflation, but he yeah, accepts he that say. the policy toward Russia has influenced yeah. inflation. So he's ex- well, he's, he's, he's accepting some responsibility. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's uh, illogical because you could blame Putin for, I mean, because the gas one, you can't really deny. Um, that's just, you know, so obvious that that's going to happen. Russia, but... They didn't sanction us. It's not Putin's problem. We yeah. Didn't. I mean, right. like, it, it, the, they're just objective realities. Any of that, did you guys watch the new Atlas? Uh, I did, actually. Did you watch any, any of uh, this guy, Mike? Um, I have a confession to make, which is that I had, <laughs> oh, I did honestly plan to do it today to and I got so caught up in the Supreme Court that I well, shamefully this is, forgot. This is what the chat was speculating for an hour and 45 minutes. That you were <laughs> this is what the people wanted to know. That you just kept avoiding me. But anyway, Richard, please tell me what you thought. Well, I think I think he's he's gra- he doesn't have enough graphics for my taste. I, I think maybe I'm a little bit like a toddler. I think I need I need more pictures to to be a little more entertained. Uh, no, I think the I think the analysis was although a little dry. I think it's you know inter- interesting enough. I think you're clearly getting a perspective that uh, uh, you're you're clearly getting the perspective that things are going you know 
great for Russia and they're going to win, but you need that perspective because uh, you're getting the opposite from the West, which just takes Ukrainian military press releases and run, runs with them. So it's, um, yeah, I, I, I am not it's, against uh, watching it. That's I think what it's, I've uh, done. It's like I've taken all of the analysis that I've gotten from there and then I've yeah. specifically sought out the pro-Russian stuff and I've tried to come up yeah. with my This is called, yeah, for, for our listeners, this is called, this is a recurring thing where Shelly asks us to watch this guy <laughs> called the, with a YouTube channel called the New Atlas and uh, I finally watched it, and so you know, well. She asked. I, I had my I had a solo call in on Sunday, and she asked and me if I watched it. it. And I pledged <laughs> that she, my intent had been to watch it for this episode. And I, I, you know, I had a sincere intent to do so, but I, I admit to having failed. It's that it's it's fine, Mike. Blame uh, blame Clarence Thomas. You know what? I actually think it's Putin's fault. So Shelly said some combination. Like you said, <laughs> I think you've got to, I think you, you should have just tell Mike, I think you should, you should send him an email or something. I think you should send, yeah, him send me an email. <laughs> send me an email. Or email. email. I, I have a call in show that I waited an hour and 45 minutes for. Um, no guys, uh, Richard, thank you so much for watching it. Um, I, I, basically <laughs> the only opinion that I was really kind of wanting from you guys was like, it is different from what we're used to hearing, and it obviously has a different bias. But that's what I—that's what I've been trying to do. I've just been trying to. Who is, who is the guy, by the way? What's his background? He is a marine stationed in Japan. Got very um, uncomfortable. Is currently, or he was? Was um, yeah. ever since I want to say maybe 2005, he basically kind of decided to move away from the U.S. Has been living in Thailand. Um, he's actually, his previous, he wrote under a pseudonym for a long time, but finally got doxxed. He's been covering military conflict for at least 15 years. So he's got like a pretty decent history behind him of sort of like ferreting out um, the United States military operations. So he's not, he's not adult and it's not like he just popped up because of this. Um, gotcha. He's been, okay. been active for a very long time, and from what I can tell, a lot of his analysis has proven true over time. Not all, but most. Um, but I, but I was just kind of curious if you guys thought that that it had value. It has some value. I think you should tell him. I don't watch many YouTube videos. If, if he was on a podcast, if Apple Store allows it, um, I'd probably listen to some of them. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, it's worth watching, you know, no, I don't watch many YouTubes, but I'd probably be more likely to, to listen on a podcast. All right. If thank you, know, you Shelly. Thank you. Thank you guys. I'm so sorry that I had to rib you, but I just had to, cause the chat wanted. No, me. no, Shelly. Yeah. We, 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 we well, probably Shelley, deserve it. Shelly really took us to task, but we're taking, <laughs> we're taking yeah. it in stride. All right. Uh, Kale, you are up. Hi. Uh, am I audible? And, and Mike, yeah. Michael, I don't, I don't know if I can stay. I think uh, after Kale, I, you know, I'm, uh, apologies to Gregory. Um, you know, I think okay. I have to go. go ahead. Oh, this go ahead. is good because I actually did want to discuss a few things with you. Uh, so first and foremost about India because I you know, know a few things about that. Um, the simplest way to say it is I would really recommend you guys look into uh, whether or not you'd even classify India as a sovereign country right now. You've had... Uh, three different issues right now in the past year, maybe two, three years, where the government has taken a step back or reversed their position based on either violent protests or movements which were supported by uh, foreign groups. 
So the first of these would be there were a lot of uh, Khalistani elements supporting the quote-unquote farmers' protests, which basically had the Indian capital sieged with tractors and more. Uh, the second of which would be um, very recent, where some normal Hindu-Muslim nonsense got out of hand. Muslims start making fun of Hindu gods, and uh, a Hindu person who was in the ruling party, the BJP, she went on uh, a show and she said that if you guys want to make fun of Hinduism, and she quoted from the Hadiths something about how uh, the age of Muhammad's first wife and something about either flying horses or something similar, I cannot recall. And even though it was a quote from the books, uh, the party basically dismissed her and she's been getting death threats and there have been violent riots across the entire country. Anyway, I just wanted to like, lay the groundwork over here, which is to say the government under Modi took part in a bunch of crackdowns against NGOs and foreign funding thereof. But it would appear that on the farmer issue, including the Khalistani situation, where, by the way, 80 plus percent of farmers supported the bill and they went back on it because of violent protests supported by foreign agents. And now this whole um, and this basically blasphemy law riots where the Indian leadership, say, has ambassadors being hauled up in Qatar and they're apologizing across the Middle East for this. They're not exactly as uh, sovereign of a nation as they're being made out to be. Who exactly are you saying that India's sovereignty has been ceded to? Um, honestly, largely, largely a very, um, let's put it, distributed NGO system. For example, um, say you want to see the, in- the complete noise about caste in America, right? A good reason that happens is because you have a group called Equality Labs whose founder is like a billionaire and he's the reason it's put together and they create think tanks to attack India on very uh, politically palatable grounds. That's how it functions. Hmm. Well, interesting. Um... I'm not sure, based on just what you sketched out, that I would necessarily um, ma- make the draw the conclusion that <laughs> India has forfeited sovereignty. But, I, but the, I'm sure, yeah. You should watch the uh, tone of the. I think it was a Senate hearing where Donald Liu is discussing the state of democracy in India. It's rather informative. Okay, uh, Kale. I'm just going to go quickly to Gregory. No, I want to actually discuss something the, with you guys. I'm sorry to have cut you off. We have to end really soon. So I just wanted to get a, a thought from Gregory in, and then we'll address both and then we'll, uh, we'll end. So first off, thanks for having me. I, this popped up as I was getting off my flight and it's been an entertaining hour. Um, I was on Twitter earlier discussing with Michael something completely unrelated to the plight of farmers, the jewel ban. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> occurred through the FDA. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I figured, uh, since I had just gotten home, I would see if there was anything that you had on your mind about that. Anything that I had on my mind about it. Um, did, you, we did, did you miss the beginning? We talked, uh, we talked about it. Uh, yeah, oh, I think you, you did miss the beginning. Um, well, I guess the, the, the exchange that I had with you was basically just me wondering, like, to what end... Are because it seems like there's been a something of an uptick in uh, spending on lobbying from some of these big tobacco companies, which now obviously include a lot of vaping products in uh, in recent years. Um, 
And so our, and my like hypothesis, which I can't substantiate really in any way, I was just sort of thinking aloud, was that perhaps some of these lobbying expenditures that were made by competitors of Juul um, could have had some impact on like the decision-making mechanism which led to this prohibition on Juul by the FDA. Um, but you said that there doesn't seem to be any correlation there at all. In which case, like, what are what are they spending all this money on? No, it is a very are, they, are, they, are they getting no return on the money? To a certain extent, they're not getting a great return because the goal for the last six, seven years has been they know they knew that the FDA was going to start regulating the next generation products, vapor products, nicotine pouches, uh, heat not burn products, all the things that these tobacco companies see as the future, the actual products that could grow in profit potential as compared to cigarettes, where every year you're guaranteed, except in certain parts of Africa, to see your revenue decline, or rather your, your unit sales decline, decline, decline. So that has been the main thing. We have we been on the side of them, and I'm for those unaware outside of Michael. I run a group called the American Vaping Association, which advocates for the product category as a whole, mostly more from the independent perspective. And there's been attempts in Congress, some very good attempts that actually would have also helped small businesses to stop actions like what happened today that would have limited the power of the FDA to ban products, including big tobacco's competitors, because they've been so worried, rightfully it turns out, that while their cigarettes are grandfathered in and their smokeless tobacco is grandfathered in, all these new products are, have been at risk for the last decade of the FDA coming in and saying, no, you can't sell them. And the U.S. is so influential that when the U.S. bans something, you have a cascade effect potentially around the world. So that doesn't completely answer your question, but I want to shut up for a minute. Yeah, I mean, so do you think it's just completely, I mean, so a, a theory that might, you know, obviously would need evidence to <laughs> even begin to establish could be that, you know, some of these dual competitors know that the FDA wants a big scapegoat. So Juul is one of the most well-known brands for e-cigarettes. And that if they can kind of cajole the FDA to just take this action against one well-known company, then that might you know, satisfy this drive to to um, get the e-cigarette industry in line and then they'll leave the competitors alone and therefore it's with, it could be within the interest of these competitors to do certain lobbying tactics that may, in one way or another, I don't know what way off the top of my head, but, but try to, to influence the FDA to taking this like, punitive action against Juul. Is that like a totally implausible theory? No. I mean, no. So I have no doubt that over the last three, four years, Philip Morris International, which... They is that's a completely separate company. Altria sells Philip Morris's cigarettes in the United States, but Philip Morris International is an entirely separate company. Uh, they hate Juul, and BAT, British American Tobacco, which owns Reynolds, the Camel cigarette brand, 
they hate Juul as well, their competitors. So no doubt they've had those conversations with legislators over the last three, four years saying this, all this bullshit with uh, kids vaping and the moral panic and this and that, this is Juul's fault and right. they should be blamed for it. But um, what you've had at the FDA is that Reynolds had their entire line of flavored vaping products uh, from their earlier generation products get denied by the FDA. Their product that is pending before FDA, their most popular product, the one they actually sell, uh, called Alto, that is probably on the good the U.S. government statistics just because it's the number two product among adults uh, in, in some convenience stores. Lo and behold, it's the number two product among youth. So now, if Juul actually does come off the market and there's reasons to think that there'll be appeals and, and denials and this and that, they become potentially the number one brand among youth. Hmm. So they also recognize that just because you get rid of Juul, that's not going to satisfy these people. The, the antis, the ones funded by Michael Bloomberg and the ones that just ideologically uh, just want this thing done, they're not going to stop with Juul. Yeah, and I heard from a bunch of correspondents uh, in their teens who are, and maybe slightly older, who were saying that, you know, Juul has not even been the go-to e-cigarette choice of, among kids for like a couple of years. Like it's seen as almost lame now. <laughs> um, yeah, because I was just in Florida and, and every convenience store, every like maybe not an ice cream store, it has a wall of disposable vaping products in different flavors from China. They're incredibly popular with adults, the, the youth that are still vaping, uh, and it's lower, significantly lower than it was two, three years ago. They're, those are the products they're using. And the FDA, soon enough, given another month, they're going to come up with an announcement saying all those products are illegal. And good luck. That's the next drug war in many ways, is Chinese manufacturers aren't going to stop Importers, primarily Middle Eastern uh, importers here in the United States, they aren't going to stop importing them. And the sea stores and gas stations and smoke shops that aren't connected to major chains, they're not going to stop selling those Chinese-made disposables. And that's going to be the next frontier. Uh, as we loosen our marijuana laws, thankfully, that's the next big uh, – they're going to probably pump another $100 million into the Center for Tobacco Products, as FDA has been asking for, uh, just to – conduct enforcement like the DEA would. Interesting. Well, uh, thanks, Gregory, uh, for that digression on vaping and its corrupting of the youth. Unfortunately, you got us right at the tail end of this call in here, so we're going to have to uh, wrap it up now. Uh, of course. Uh, Thank you to you both. Yeah. I, I enjoy your Twitter account, and uh, great to talk to you. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, uh, Richard, any closing parting thoughts? Uh, nope. It's been fun. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you guys next week. All right. Bye-bye.